You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We'll be reading Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 10, and you could follow along with me as we read God's Word. As we remind you, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, a church he planted and is growing and now writes a a message to them, and uh, we follow up here in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Few have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is God's word. So a very brief recap on where we began last week. Paul wanted to be very clear in defining what it meant to know and embrace and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of God. And It wasn't based on our performance to God, but actually in spite of our, despite our poor performance, God was loving us, extending grace to us. And this is grace. This is the good news. The good news is that grace is an unearned gift from God. And this gospel is airtight. It it can't allow room for anything to to taint it, to, to, to meddle or muddle it. It's, if a little air gets in a vacuum, then it no longer becomes a vacuum. It becomes something else. You know, we have those space bags at home. Maybe you have those too, you know, where you take all your winter clothes. For us, it's all our baby clothes, right? You put them in these bags, you zip it up, and then you have this vacuum hose that you suck all the air out of, and it, and it takes this huge bag down to like the width of like a, a book. And, it, and it's incredible, but if, if one little corner is unsealed, if one little hole is in there, All the air gets in, and it becomes useless. Paul is trying to avoid, what he's trying to avoid is the same thing happening with the gospel. To have this air tight, like he wants to explain to us, this is what it means to know, to follow, to embrace the good news of God. Keep it airtight. Christ died for sinners, and it's based upon that work that he did on the cross through Jesus Christ. That is everything and matters to us. And as we finish up chapter 1, we see this portrait of the gospel as it's worked out 
not just hypothetically or theologically, but practically in the life of a person. And so Paul uses his own life as a demonstration of what God has done in his life for how the gospel works in a person's life. And it's an appropriate transition from last week to this week because the question I hope that we're all wrestling with or thinking about as we move from this is the gospel is, okay, how does it apply to my life? So here's the gospel. Here's what it means. Here's what I am to believe and who God says he is and what he has done for us through Jesus. How do I bring that into the stream of my life, my, my today, what I do and what, how I plan and my, my marriage and my schooling and my relationships and my work and my neighboring How do I bring the gospel to bear into my life? And so Paul is wanting to explain to his readers, as he shows his own life, how that can happen also for them. And it's a dramatic transformation for Paul. The gospel has a dramatic, life-changing transformation in him. He tells the story of how God's grace played out in his life from even before he was born uh, to his time of rebelling against God, to now his new life. He calls his old way of living his former life, his old self. His testimony is not just a testimony for us to understand the life of Paul, but a portrait of what real gospel transformation looks like in our lives. And so I don't want you to come away from today learning more about the character and life and nature of Paul. Those, that's only a, a metaphor for us for how the gospel can bear on our life. So Paul describes, to put it in the simplest way, how he became a Christian. One of the most famous Christians who has ever lived, the Apostle Paul, spent much of his early life trying to destroy Christianity. He is responsible for the death and murder of many Christians. He spent much of his early adult life just trying to thwart the message of the gospel. How did that change? Paul describes three ways his life changed, and these really are describing really what it means, the essence of what it means to be a Christian. He, here are the three things, and we'll go through them. He goes from a me-centered truth to a God-centered truth, a me-driven salvation versus a God-driven salvation, and a me-glorifying life to a God-glorifying life. Let's look at the me-centered truth first versus a God-centered truth. So Paul begins to describe what it means to be a Christian, and he begins in, a, in an unexpected place. He doesn't get down to the nitty-gritty. He doesn't say, okay, here are the behaviors you have to do differently. Here is what you have to say differently. You can't talk this way anymore. You can't do this thing anymore. You have to change up your life and clean it up. He doesn't start there. Uh, he seems to answer an important question that we all ask throughout our lives, and that question is, How do we know what's true at all? I mean, Christianity has some pretty bold claims for how we are to to live our lives. It's a really radical message, a total surrender, total allegiance to a person, Jesus Christ, and it would be foolish to just follow it blindly and say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll follow that with my whole life. I'll give my whole life to God. And so he reasons with these fellow Christians who are likely asking this question, how do we know that your message as it competes with other messages that we hear, how do we know that we should listen to what you say? Do you ever feel that way? How do we know what's right? How do we know what's true? We have so many voices and messages coming to us about how we are to live our life. How do we choose? Who gets to adjust your thinking? Who gets to tell you that you're wrong? What truth are you going to embrace? 
And he says, you think someone taught me this? You think, you think this is my message? You know, Paul is contrasting the, the value of human experience and human reason with divine revelation. God originating knowledge of truth. Things are not as different today as they were in, in this respect as they were in the first century. There are multiple views of God. There are multiple views of how we are to live in a way that pleases God. There are competing views of truth, competing, truths, uh, com- competing v- views of truth then and, and now. And so what people did then is, they, is what they do now. We kind of pick and choose. We take what sounds good. We take what feels right. We, take, we accumulate ideas and beliefs and preferences that seem to make sense and be plausible to our life and say, yeah, I can see where you got that. I'll embrace that. And then meanwhile, there could be somebody right next to us uh, picking totally different set of truths and values and say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. It makes sense. This makes sense to me. I hear many people who might object to the claims of Christianity say, I don't believe in Christianity because I, I can't come to the peace with the idea of a God who would send his son to die. I, I can't come to terms with this idea that God would, would make us, create us, and have children, and then send some of them to hell. I can't come to terms with a God who would allow any bad thing to happen to his children. It's like just as logical as somebody saying, I don't believe in wearing a life jacket because I don't like the idea of drowning. Nevertheless, Paul knows. He knows what it's like to wrestle with this. He knows what it's like to reason with people that are wrestling with what is true, how do I live, and what truths do I embrace, and what truths do I discard. And the Bible speaks to this idea that people think that they can determine what's true based on their experience and understanding and their own preferences. And Paul answers the question. He says, I'll have you know that what I'm teaching I wasn't taught by any person, but by God. It is not my human reasoning compared to another human reasoning. It is human reasoning compared to the revelation of God and his word. This is not to say that all human reasoning is is bad. Just think of what humans have been able to do and accomplish. Amazing things, the things that humans have been able to discover and to invent, and to create. Human beings are are made in the image of God, which means that we are capable of such amazing, wonderful, beautiful things. But because our human knowledge comes with limitations, it comes with flaws, it comes with imperfections, the way that we think, the way that we reason, the way that we understand truth is always warped by our selfishness, by our sin. Our knowledge is biased against God. It's bent towards ourselves. And so we need something beyond ourselves, something that's not flawed, something that is not imperfect, something that isn't tainted by sin. And that's God's word to us. And so Paul sets himself apart from from any other kind of wisdom from the world or any kind of idea of God. He's saying, I wasn't taught this. This isn't my own idea. I'm just not the, I'm not the smartest person in the room, and that's how I got here. This is from God. It's revelation from God. Our beliefs, however passionate 
they feel at the time never outclass God's Word. Our views, no matter how convinced we might feel, our emotions, no matter how passionate and sure we might feel, none of it ever outclasses the Word of God. And so the first fundamental issue with Paul's Christian transformation was his choice between the finite, flawed, and not trustworthy reasoning of self or the infinite, perfect, good, and reliable Word of God. And he is saying, which one do you want? Which one will you base your life on? Which one will you dive all the way in for? Which one can you really stand and rest upon? Is it, this, is it this word that is constantly changing and this belief and truth system that's constantly shifting? Or is it the word of God that's the same yesterday, today, and forever? He picks the word of God. And it is this word of God that informs his real need of rescue in his life. And so the first thing as we look at what it means to be a Christian isn't about a changed behavior, a changed attitude, or a changed life. It is about it is a shift between a me-centered truth to a God-centered truth. God is describing what is real, and we take his word as truth because there is no one like God. And that leads him to a me-driven salvation versus a God-driven salvation. This transition from, okay, God is... God has revealed this need for rescue. How will I become rescued? How will I become saved from this life that is broken and reckless and rebellious against God? As I mentioned, Paul wasn't always a Christian. He was a Jew, and frankly, as he, if you just ask himself, he was the best Jew. The best Jew. He lived his whole life in an environment designed uh, to prepare him to be the best kind of Jew, a Pharisee. He was, like, he was a Pharisee in training. He was, he was the best of the best. He memorized the entire Torah. Um, that's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Genesis. Uh, it's like the first 200 pages in my Bible. Memorized, word for word. Uh, Paul says, according to the law, I was flawless. Flawless. Can anybody say that? In his, in, in his day, there was, a, there was not a person more moral, um, more right, according to the law of God, than Paul. And this, I don't think this was just an inflated view of himself. I think this was actually a proper assessment of his skill and ability. And he was immersed in a schooling system designed to create people like him, to be the next big Jewish thing. You look at verse 14 again. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among many people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. If, if knowing the word of God was an Olympic sport, I mean, Paul would be a world record holder. Unbeatable. Just forget the rest of, I mean, just think about that for a moment. Forget the rest of the passage just for a second and just... Look at how great this guy is. I mean, this is what you, this is what you put on your LinkedIn profile. Right? This is right up there. It's, Paul is an amazing godly man. As the world looks at Paul, this is exactly the kind of man you want to be. If you were starting a church, this is the guy you'd want on your team. 
If you were looking for volunteers to serve with you, this is the guy you'd want. If you wanted to, to live next door to somebody, if you wanted to hire somebody, if you wanted somebody watching your children, if you wanted to seek advice for how to live a good life, Paul is the guy to go to. This is the guy you'd see walk into the room and begin to speak and share and you, his, his knowledge, and you would say, this guy is way out of our league. This is the mark to hit. We should be like Paul. No one would think of Paul, and certainly not Paul himself, as a man who was far from salvation. And yet here he is, acknowledging he is a rebel from God in need of salvation. Paul realizes that there's more than one way to run away from God. There's more than one way to rebel against God. See, the first way that we think about a person who is running away from God, it's obvious. It's the person who's doing what we would call immoral acts. It's the person sinning in their life. It's the person doing and saying things that are not consistent with what God has commanded. But that was nothing like Paul. Paul was not that guy. Paul realizes there's another way to run away from God and to miss out on his blessings completely. And it's harder to see, but it's just as evil. You can also rebel against God by trying to do good in order to save yourself. Now, wait a minute. That, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. You're telling me that like the, trying the best that I can and being the best and following everything that God says that's bad? That, that gets me in the wrong place? In all of Paul's zealous do-gooding, he was still far away from the power of the gospel to change his life. Why? Because he was focused on a me-driven salvation. His salvation was still based on what he could do for God. It was based on his proficiency in the word of God. It was based on his actions. It was based on his obedience. It was based on what he could offer God. And Paul calls that life the former life. See, this is weird. Like, Paul is looking at this and saying, I'm glad I'm not that man anymore. And yet, so many of us are trying to be that man or woman. We're trying to be the man or woman that, God, that people look at and say, you do everything right. Is there anything that you're not good at? I want to be like you. That's the person we're trying to be. He's been removed from this former life, but what terrifies him now as he looks into the lives of these people he loves, these Christians in this church, he sees a similar way of living, similar traits of his former life in their current life. And he says, you're doing the same thing, and I know what it, where it gets you. It gets you far from God. You are trying to do things to get cleaned up before God so that you will be acceptable to him. And that's a false gospel, and that's a lie. What does Paul see in them that he once saw in himself that he is so ashamed of? It was obsessed with being good enough for God, good enough in the eyes of others. It used to, I used to be motivated by what other people thought, and it pushed me into a, a me-driven salvation. And now I see that you're doing it too. He says, you think I'm trying to please people? 
you think the reason I'm saying this is to please you? I'm not, I'm not like that anymore. That's not what motivates me. That's not what, that's not what makes me feel valuable, secure, accepted, and significant. It's not what you think of me. It's not the good that I can do for God. It's what Jesus has done for me. He said, I've, I've been saved from that life, from that former life. People-pleasing. He's talking about people-pleasing. It could be seen as like this small character flaw, you know, something that we might admit. We're like, well, I, I think too much about what people think of me, and that kind of gets me into bad, bad habits, actions, and thoughts, and things like that. Paul says, well, this is really damaging. It's not a small character flaw. It's actually a, dam- it's a very damaging thing. One of the main contributors to a lack of experience of the gospel peace in our life is this the damaging habit of people-pleasing. What does people-pleasing look like? I'm going to ruin most of your days here, sorry. Constant anxiety over what people think about you. Personal performance dominating your self-esteem, right? Your self-value, your self-esteem, your ideal self of the picture you want to be. Pretending or hiding your true self. You kind of keep the reality of who you are kind of far from people. You avoid confrontation. You take criticism badly. You're fearful of people knowing your weaknesses. You envy the success of others and even want some people to fail. That makes you feel better. You feel important because of what you do for God. You do a lot of spiritual activity for God and you're like, I feel like I'm in the, place, I'm in the right place with God. You feel guilty to enjoy what God has given to you when you mess up. Anybody like that? You sin against God and you feel like you're on probation. You've got to do a lot of good things before you can feel his presence and love and compassion again. I mean, there's many more, right? Some of these things I just feel in one weekend. (laughs) How about you? How about you? Are any of these these signs of people-pleasing in your life? Paul says, I've been there. All of these, when we indulge in them, it, it directs us towards, Paul says, a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. And when we are living our life like this, Paul says it's no small matter. In fact, what we are doing is we're trying to save ourselves, We're trying to save ourselves. We're trying to, to do all the right things. Paul says, uh, I love what he says in verse 25. He says, they only were hearing it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching a faith he once tried to destroy. That's the testimony of every single person who comes to rest in the good news of Jesus. Because when we are trying to save ourselves, we're all trying to persecute the good news of God. We're all trying to do away with it. We're all trying to dismantle it. We're opposing the gospel when we are coming to God and saying, well, the gospel and the grace is for others, but I need to do this. I need to be good enough for God. A me-driven salvation believes at its core that we can gain God's approval by our performance. It leads to people-pleasing, which leads to resting in a form of the gospel that Paul says is no gospel at all, and it cannot save us, it cannot satisfy us, it'll always leave us longing for more. And if you see yourself in that list, I hope you're saying, I want that to be my former life. 
Maybe you feel like you're on one side of the road kind of looking at that life and saying, how do I cross the street? How do I get over there? I want to, that to be my former life. I want to be like Paul and say, I used to be like this. But instead I'm saying, that's how I live now. And it feels like a prison. It feels like a curse. I want to be able to refer to that kind of, that kind of agony and anxiety in my life as the way I used to live. The only way to move from that me-driven salvation is to embrace a God-driven salvation. Verse 15 provides for us the, image, the hinge of Paul's life. And, and in 10 to 14, we see one side of Paul's life. And then 16 to 24, we see this other side. And verse 15 is that hinge upon which Paul's life shifts. And he says this, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul says becoming a Christian like Paul did is not a matter of a formula that we must figure out and solve, but it is a matter of the power of God intervening in our life, transforming us, telling us who we are and who he is, and us believing that. Resting in that, embracing it, having a real experience with that love that casts out the fear in us, that casts out all the doubt of our worth to God. For Paul, the gospel was real at the moment of God revealing himself to him. For God, the gospel was real before Paul was even born. And so it is with those who God calls by his grace. So Paul recognizes how the grace of God works. The grace of God in order to be gracious, the gift of God in order to be a gift that's unearned, must be given regardless of what we can offer. Before I came to saving faith in Christ, Paul says God was working behind the scenes. God was working, he was orchestrating he was being patient with me before I was even born. He set me apart. Before I could even accomplish a single good deed, God had set me apart. You see, there are two ways to rebel against God. Through our sin, we rebel against God, but we also rebel against God through our righteousness. Meaning, we rebel against God by trying to do good to manipulate his blessing and love to us. And it's common to repent only of the bad things we do. But a Christian who knows the grace of God will repent not only of the bad things we do, but also of the good things that we do for the wrong reasons. Trying to get God to love us, trying to get other people to love us, finding our self-worth, our self-identity, our self-esteem in how we perform before God and before others. We think it's a miracle when, you know, someone is stuck in, in witchcraft or addiction that is transformed by the power of God. Or have you seen these stories of people that have lived the former life of like what we would call very immoral life, and they change their life, they repent of their sins, they become a Christian, they trust Jesus, and their life is changed, and we say, what a miracle. You know, it's no less of a miracle for a very, very good person to say, all of those good deeds were worthless. It all depends on Jesus. It is no less of a miracle for someone to be raised in the church, spending their whole life 
following the scriptures, knowing their Bible study lessons, obeying their parents, doing good in school, never getting trouble with the law. And to get to a point and say, none of that matters. It's all because of Jesus' grace for me. That's a miracle. That's the power of God. The implications of this good news are enormous for us. This means that Paul, who was a violent and ugly guy on the inside and outside, well, I don't know if he was ugly on the outside, but he was a, <laughs> he was a pretty bad guy. Even someone like Paul was not outside of the reach of God's grace. Neither are we. No one is too far gone. No one is too reliant on themselves. No one is too self-focused and me-driven. No one has spent too much of their life trying to be the best at everything they do, only to come to realize that none of it matters. No one is too far gone from the grace of God. God's arm is not too short to rescue you. Paul recognizes what makes the grace of God so gracious. He establishes his plan and acceptance of Paul before Paul was born. And he was patient with Paul up until the point that he would then bring Paul into the light of his good news, reveal it to Paul, give him a new heart, and change his life. The choice of God to rescue us from our sin, the grace of God given to us apart from any good that we can offer, saturates the Bible. This message of grace saturates the entire Bible. To deny the gracious choice of God, which leads to salvation, truly denies the teachings of the Old Testament. Teaches, it, it denies the teaching of Moses, of King David, of the prophets, of the New Testament, of Jesus, of Paul and all the apostles. To deny God's choice in our salvation is to deny the message that saturates all of Scripture. The gospel is not good advice for how to live a better life. It's good news for how we are loved by God despite all our failures and regardless of our attempts to please Him. So by Paul telling us his story, he is not wanting us to be more like Paul. He's showing us even though our circumstances may be different, the transformation can be the same. The new life, the salvation, the rescue can be the same. It's a transformation from resting in our performance to resting in the performance of Christ for us. Jesus secures the Father's full approval for us on the cross, and we can't get more of it. He's given it all to us. He's given us, we are the, we are the recipients of his full affection, so much so that when he looks at us in Christ, he sees no sin. He looks at us as if we have never done a single thing wrong, never rebelled, never betrayed, never distorted the truth. He looks at us as, as if we are the, the beloved children that, that have never disobeyed. Knowing this, resting in that, this new identity, right? Not, not just a set of of theological, doctrinal knowledge, but an experience with the truth and love of God. It will impact every area of your and my life. It will even impact the very motivation by which you do anything. 
So you think, well, does this, this is wonderful. Does this mean we don't have to do anything good anymore? Because I'm not saved by what I do good. So I can just do anything, right? Free pass. Well, not, not exactly. We wrap up this as Paul sees a, a, another shift from a, a me-glorifying life to a God-glorifying life. See, it isn't that our, the law of God is no longer relevant. It's not that God does not desire a life of holiness. He does desire a life of obedience and holiness. But now we follow him and do good things for a different reason. No longer do we do it in order to please others or to earn God's acceptance. We do it to glorify God. Paul comes full circle. I hope you can see this. Take a quick glance at the first half of our passage and you will become dizzy with counting all the times Paul uses the words I, me, and my. I mean, it's just all, Paul's just like, this is all that I was doing, right? I, 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 me, me, my, my. That's just what he's doing. Paul's being very clear. Before Jesus, my life was all about me. My life was about my recognition. It was about my status, my reputation. It was about what I could get out of this. That's what my life was all about. It was all about being known, about being seen, about being noticed, about having the admiration of others, about accomplishing great things so that my name would become great. Everyone knew Paul. Everyone knew him. He was, you remember, in this class of very, very unique and few people. And they were praising Paul for what he had accomplished in his life. And then in verse 22, do you see what Paul says? No one knew me. See, it was a former life where everyone knew Paul to this new life where he is shadow. They heard stories of him. They didn't know him. They heard stories about how the gospel, what gospel he was preaching. And when they heard the gospel that he was preaching, they didn't glorify Paul, they glorified God because of what Paul was saying. Do you see that? Do you see that shift? Paul is saying, my former life was all about me, and now it's about God, and God is getting the glory. Because I don't need to be known. I don't need to be recognized by others. I don't need to be, I don't need to be admired by everyone I meet. If you and I are motivated by anything greater than making God's name great in our lives, then we will inevitably give up. We will end up giving, giving, compromising God's word. We will end up reinterpreting God's word to fit into our agenda for our life. If our life and everything we do is motivated by making our name great, we will change what the Bible says. We will disobey God. We will make our own lives. We will take God's word and make it fit into our life in a way that pleases us because our end goal is just to have the admiration. But if it's God, if our life is all about his glory and making him known, if our aim and motivation and reward for anything that we do is not the glory of God, we will be trapped in a me-centered life, a me-centered lifestyle. God loves us. God accepts us. God makes us significant. He extends grace to us. He fills us with his spirit so that we can glorify him. And there's nothing that glorifies God more than his children 
than seeing his children entering into and fully enjoying a relationship with himself. What does that mean to glorify God? What's, what, what's in it for us? Oh, to know God, to be in relationship with him, to be satisfied at the deepest part of our being with the full affection of a God who loves us and cares for us. There's no greater, greater satisfaction than that. When God is glorified, our joy is complete. And when we rob that glory from God and take it for ourselves, we're chasing after an enemy, something that will rob and kill and destroy ourselves. So if you're trapped in the painful pattern of me, salvation, this can be a former life just like it was for Paul. You can say, I used to be this way, but by the grace of God, that was the old life. Every single day we can, we can make that affirmation. Every single day we can rest in that truth that God is making me new. That there are, tr- there are things that are pretending to be truths in my life that are teaching me these things. But I am going to rest in the truth of God because this isn't a me, I'm not going to live by a me-centered truth, but a God-centered truth. I'm going to be driven not by a, a me-driven salvation, but a God-driven salvation. And I'm going to live not for my admiration, but for God's. What makes you right with God? What, it's not what's on your spiritual resume. Because you have to be better than Paul, and it didn't work for him. Jesus even said, you're going to have to be, you're going to have to be more spiritual than the most spiritual person ever. And even then, it won't be enough. No one's better than Paul, and he wasn't good enough. No one's better than the Pharisees, and they weren't good enough. Paul has confidence to say something that we can say as well. By the grace of God, I'm not that person anymore. 